Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 2 of the Action Comics Daily Appendix. This is our Patreon-first program wherein I uh, rediscover some uh, old work I had done over at Chris's on Infinite Earths wherein I dedicated the better part of a year to going through every single story that appeared in Action Comics Weekly back in 1988 and into 1989. And boy, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am to have gotten through the introduction here. Um, I've literally been sitting here about 13 minutes trying just to get that one line out. It's been tough because, uh, well, the first several times I said, Welcome to Episode 2 of X-Lapsed, and I said that several times, and then I just started stuttering, and it was just a real disaster. So I'm happy to be through you know, the first minute or so of this program. So yes, this is Episode 2, the uh, difficult sophomore episode of the program. Uh, the second episodes are always the hardest. I think I've said this before because... You know, with the first episode, there's like a lot of excitement, a lot of explanations, a lot of uh, kind of planning and thinking out loud that uh, takes up some of the time of the show. Then you get to the second show where it's like that uncomfortable like middle ground between introducing a concept and not lingering too long on introducing the, the concept since, I mean, it is a second episode and the entire concept has been mostly laid out. But in any event, here we are, the difficult second episode of the program here. And uh, I do want to start by uh, going into a little bit of uh, Christory here. During the first episode, since I knew it was going to be a longer one, I didn't really delve into all of the factors that served as a catalyst towards shifting the blog focus from just random DC Comics reviews to a more focused Action Comics Weekly-centric endeavor, I guess we can say. Now, you see, it wasn't necessarily planned, but at the same time, it wasn't it wasn't like a last-second decision either. I was coming up on my third anniversary of daily blogging over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, and uh, I thought that... Celebrating three years would be a decent time to maybe not so much pull the plug, but uh, maybe pull the plug on the daily aspect of the blog. Uh, just make it so I'd blog every once in a while. A lot of things were going on in life at that point. I was about to start grad school, which I was very, very nervous about. I was very anxious about uh, getting back into the uh, into the school rigmarole after taking about a year off after I had uh, gotten my bachelor's degree. And a lot of this stuff I have uh, discussed at, at, you know, varying levels of uh, depth over on the Chris's on Infinite Earths program, which you could find in the archives here if you dig deep enough. Um, i got to figure out a way to, <laughs> to simplify the uh, navigation of the channel here. I mean, we're up to like almost 800 episodes, so I could imagine it's probably a little difficult to find, uh, like, one episode. You know, I know I've searched for some just to... Actually, it wasn't too long ago I pulled the episode in which I talked about Action Comics Weekly 601, so I could use that audio in the middle portion of the first episode of this program, and it, it, it took some doing to find it. <laughs> I mean, it was tough. I actually gave up uh, looking for it on the channel... And I uh, wound up realizing I still had it on my hard drive. So that it was easier than, uh, than I would assume it might be if I had to try to dig it up and download it from the, uh, the audio aggregates online. But I'm tangenting. I mean, we're only three or so minutes in and I'm already deep on a tangent. So let's go on to the other tangent, the main tangent, the tangent I wanted to discuss here. Why 
did we shift from just the random DC Comics blog to the Action Comics Weekly blog? Well, there were two reasons for that. Uh, the first was uh, time. You know, there was a time crunch. And also my uh, compulsivity. You know, I couldn't let go of the streak. And I mean, even till this very day, there's been something new every single day on Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. And I mean, it's probably not the healthiest thing to do <laughs> to uh, focus on putting out quite that much content, uh, especially, you know, when nobody's really asking for it. <laughs> I've never become like destination listening or destination reading. But, you know, when you hit a certain stage of life and uh, maybe you experience loss, you start to think about things like what you might leave behind. And I mean, I'm definitely over-romanticizing a silly little comic book blog, but the wife and I are trying to have a child, but we're both worried that we waited too long to start this process. So I'm not really sure that, you know, I'm going to leave anything behind. You know, just a room full of, uh, of paper, you know, and that's... Kind of a sobering thought, and I could go a lot deeper into that, but I, I guess I will I will spare you. But, you know, when I think about creating, you know, I, I see myself as uh, wildly untalented. I don't know that I could ever put together a work of fiction that would capture anybody's imagination. I don't see myself ever creating music. I don't see myself creating art. But one thing I can do is talk about something that I'm very passionate about. And among the things that I am passionate about, uh, you know, hobby-wise, comics is at the top of the list. So I don't want to say that I see the blog and the podcast as a legacy project, but at the same time, I can't say that it isn't. You know, I, this is something that, when I'm not here, will hopefully still be around and still be able to be enjoyed. And I tell you, you know, saying that out loud, finally, uh, I didn't realize how pathetic it sounded. So <laughs> I do apologize for that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that I, that I do, you know? It's something that I can control to a point. Um, and it's just a, it's something that allows me the opportunity to, you know, kind of flourish in my own head, you know? I get to talk about things that excite me, that, that I'm passionate about, hopefully meet some other folks who are also passionate about these same things and make friends and have a good time. And, I mean, like I said, I'm probably over-romanticizing this thing here, but that's kind of what I do. So anyway, as the third year anniversary was looming on the horizon, it was, uh, of course, the anniversary of the blog is January 31st. That was the first day that I actually put pen to digital paper and started Started the journey here, started talking about um, Tales of the Teen Titans number 55 was my first blog post over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, one of my very favorite single-issue comics. And so as the, uh, as the anniversary loomed and as my return to school also loomed, perhaps even larger on the horizon, I knew something would have to give. And luckily, uh, the blog posts, and I mean several of the shows as well, have served as something of a, a diary entry for me. So uh, I don't actually have to try to recall all this stuff or, you know, call it back to mind here because in my third anniversary post back in 2019, I actually wrote a fair amount about the thought process behind this shift in focus for the blog. So I can just refer to that instead of uh, <laughs> mangling and muddying my, uh, my memories here. So... This is what I wrote on uh, January 31st of 2019. After I was done synopsizing, reviewing an issue, and actually another issue of Tales of the Teen Titans, it was Tales of Teen Titans number 59, which um, 
would reprint the first ever uh, New Teen Titans adventure from uh, DC Comics Presents number 21, the, the, you know, the pullout preview. At the end of that post, after, you know, thanking everybody and doing the whole sappy, you know, Oscar speech thing, I write the following. So here's the thing. In a scant handful of weeks, I'll be heading off to grad school in order to procure my EDS and state certification to become a school psychologist. This is most certainly going to put a crimp in my free time. Now, this little blog may not look like much, but I do put two to three, sometimes four hours of work into it each and every day. That's upward of 30 hours a week and could be over 100 a month. That's a lot of time. Between the blog and the Chris and Reggie Network of shows, I knew something was going to have to give. There's no way I could continue both and still have time for school, work, and family. And so, after more sleepless nights than I'm comfortable admitting to, though I suppose I sort of just did, I decided that with this anniversary post, I was going to put a pin in the site. And I decided that around New Year's, so about a month ago, of course, that was New Year's of 2019. I continue, and I mean, is it tacky to quote yourself? Maybe it is. Uh, Maybe I'm a tacky guy, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, I, I digress. Then I said... Then I found myself going through the classic Kubler-Ross stages of grief. You see, as if this isn't abundantly clear, I have sort of an addictive personality and a hard time letting go of things. I mean, this blog, as unspectacular as it may appear, has become sort of my digital home, you know? It's also like the second longest relationship I've ever had. And so I eventually hit stage three of the Kubler-Ross scale, bargaining. How could I somehow continue this blog while returning to school and maintaining the podcasts? And, you know, all that real-life stuff, too. As I was pre-rehearsing my final send-off for this blog, that's a normal thing people do, right? Like write bits and pieces of their blog while in the shower or while doing dishes or something? That's not obsessive behavior, is it? Well, anyhow, uh, while mentally pre-writing what I assumed would be my final send-off and farewell... Well, I think I might have found a way to keep on trucking. It's going to be kind of different, though somewhat familiar. Then I have a little aside here that reads, uh, And at this point in my writing, I'm chuckling to myself because really, nobody cares about my process. Barely anybody knows or cares that this blog exists in the first place. Ah well, in for a paragraph, in for an essay. Back to the main thoughts here. One of the books I wanted to discuss long-form, almost from the get-go, is Action Comics Weekly. I wanted to go through and cover every story in the anthology, but always considered it too daunting a task. I mean, there's a lot of pages in these books, and not all of them look fun. Action Comics Weekly is also a subject Reggie and I want to cover the entirety of in future episodes of The Cosmic Treadmill. We've already done four episodes on the Green Lantern chapters alone. So here's the plan, for now. We're going to cover a single chapter from Action Comics Weekly a day. ACW has six chapters per issue, so each issue will take a week, and on the seventh day I'll compile the chapters into one great big normal post. We're going to call this project Action Comics Daily. Now, this isn't to say we won't deviate from Action Comics Weekly should I get the urge to write about something else, because that's going to happen. It really didn't. (laughs) It really didn't happen. We did take one week off from Action Comics Daily to do uh, Christmas on Infinite Earths in July, And uh, I believe I took a look at uh, Christmas with the Superheroes number two for that week here, which was a nice palate cleanser and uh, really recharged the batteries because there is some doldrums in this Action Comics Weekly run. But we will, of course, get there. Back to me. I said, it's also not to say that this whole thing won't blow up in my face and peter out in no time flat. I can say for certain that it'll likely be a bit wonky at first while I iron out any wrinkles and get situated. 
I'm generally a pretty rigid dude when it comes to how I format my stuff, so this will likely be quite the learning experience for me. We'll play with it, because I mean, it's not like there are any rules here to break, only the ones I've imposed on myself. So I hope you'll join me for our adventure into Action Comics Weekly, and for anything else I'm able to fit in. Thanks so much for stopping by, especially if you managed to read through all my mutterings to this point. So yeah, this was basically a deal I made with myself. (laughs) And as I mentioned there in the write-up, I am usually very, very rigid. Um, Folks who have followed the blog from the start or from the earliest days will know that there is a process at play there, and... I was quite rigid, and I did impose rules on uh, how I was going to, you know, cover and approach certain topics and titles on the blog. And I mean, I don't know if that just speaks to my need for there to be rules. (laughs) Maybe I flourish when there are limitations. I don't know, but I needed for there to be structure, which, you know, kind of helps with, uh, you know, keeping you on task and keeping you focused. It, um, the, the lack of flexibility, it kind of pigeonholes you a little bit here. And, uh, devoting a focus, like, actually winnowing down from, you know, back in the long ago, I said that my first goal in creating a blog post, you know, 2016, when I came back to the blogging, or the blogosphere, I guess, the comics blogosphere, was that I wanted to have a blog dedicated to something. I wanted it to have a focus, and that, that's not to say that I don't like blogs that are just like full-blown any comics sites, because those are great too, but I wanted to have more of a zeroed-in sort of a focus here. It would help give me direction, it would help just keep me, like I said earlier, on task. And initially, it was going to be a Teen Titans blog. But even before I actually got started doing this, I realized that... Uh, A, if I started a blog, it was going to consume me, and I would probably wind up, you know, only reading the books that I'd be covering, which, I mean, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and (laughs) I don't have much time for the fun reading anymore. But I also saw that as just being a little too niche, you know, a little too uh, tight, and uh, I wanted to ensure that I could, you know, spread the digital wings a little bit wider than just talking about a single family of books. Which, I mean, fast forward to X-Lapsed and, uh, well, enough said. But anyway, when I, when I started Chris's on Infinite Earths, I decided to grow out of the Teen Titans, uh, I guess, fiefdom of the DC Universe, and uh, just do the entire DC Universe. And actually, just DC publications here, because we did some Piranha Press stuff, we've done Vertigo stuff, we've gone outside the mainstream DCU, we've done some... Uh, Create our own stuff, we did Ronin, I mean, we did a bunch of stuff, but it all had to have that DC bullet, or, you know, a permutation of the DC bullet, or just having DC comics in the Indicia. Now, in order to not be too freewheeling, I I did impose rules on myself here. I had to actually physically own the issues that uh, that we were talking about. Which made projects like, you know, first issue special, uh, you know, especially pressing, you know, trying to find those dingbats and uh, lady cop issues to discuss here on the site. But to get back on topic, if I was ever on topic, I suppose, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there was a process and it required a lot of time and a lot of effort to to keep up with the way I did things. And like I said, it the, the blog is not much to look at, <laughs> you know? But there is a whole lot of uh, time, effort, and heart behind it. And I just couldn't walk away. You know, I had the better part of that month, January 2019, to try to figure out a best-of-both-worlds sort of situation. 
and where I could keep things going, but also not have to invest quite so much time. And even, I mean, with the compilation day, it's almost like getting a day off. Of course, I did find ways to screw myself out of that day off by writing all new introductions and doing polls and stuff like that. So I was still putting in a fair amount of effort, probably more effort than when I covered, you know, certain stories in Action Comics Weekly. But anyway, this was the happy medium I was looking for, where I could actually keep things going every single day while not having to devote, you know, three to four to five hours to it every single day. And here's the thing, even going up to the day that I announced that the shift was going to happen, and I mean, it's so funny that I'm talking about this so seriously. Like, it's something that actually matters in real life. <laughs> I'm having one of those uh, revelations here that, like, I'm talking about a stupid comic book blog. <laughs> Who cares? But anyway, I was juggling with the idea of whether or not to do this, even up to the day that I announced it, because, well, I mean, my unflinching rigidity or rigidness that I uh, that I conducted the blog with, I didn't want to break away from that. And also, I it's weird, I felt like I'd be shortchanging the readers, because instead of talking about an entire issue and also being able to include things like the letters pages and ads in every single post, well, it was going to change. You know, we were going to be discussing seven to nine page stories four days out, or five days out of the week and then a two-page Sunday strip once a week. And then I'd be devoting a day to rehashing everything. I felt like I was ripping everybody off. I felt like I was cheating. And again, this is... This probably speaks more to my uh, compulsivity and my uh, weird need to serve, but uh, yeah, this was something I definitely struggled with. Ultimately, I'm you know beyond pleased that uh, I decided to go this route and actually managed to stick with it um, for several reasons. I, you know, like I said last episode, this isn't something that had been done before, and you know if anybody actually knew that the blog existed, these posts could serve as a resource. Anybody who wants to refer to anything. From the Action Comics Weekly Days, well, you'll find it at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, so long as you know that the site exists, or if Google will actually direct you there, which isn't always the case. Also, and perhaps more importantly, um, doing Action Comics Daily instilled a measure of flexibility in my process here, where I realized that there really are no rules. You know, um, what, you know, my question was always like, what is content? What makes up comics commentary content. And to me, for the longest time, it was completionism. It has to be everything. Here with Action Comics Daily, I learned that, you know, there is a time and place for everything, and I did make sure to include everything, but for a daily blog, there is room for, you know, bite-sized bits and, and flexibility. I feel like that was a really hard-learned lesson, but one that I did learn by going through this process. Now, as we work our way through this series, I'll probably be peppering in, you know, more bits and pieces of Christory, and uh, I hope that isn't <laughs> too much of a turnoff, because for the past, you know, five and a half, almost six years now, um, this content creation endeavor has been a huge part of my life here. It's monopolized a lot of my free time, probably way too much of my free time, but uh, it's become a part of me, and I guess by extension, so has Action Comics Weekly. So how about I quit yapping and we get into today's issue. Uh, this is Action Comics Weekly number 602. Uh, it was released on April 12th, 1988. We got ourselves six stories here. Green Lantern in Requiem, Dead Man in Showdown, Wild Dog in Moral Stand Chapter 2, Dog Gone, 
Superman in They Can Run But They Can't Hide, The Secret Six in Look What Fell Out of the Sky Today, and Black Hawk in Another Fine War, Part 2. Written by Jim Owsley, Mike Barron, Max Collins, Roger Stern, Marty Pasco, and Mike Grell. Pencils by Gil Kane, Dan Jurgens, Terry Beatty, Kurt Swan, Dan Spiegel, and Rick Burchett. Inks, Tony DiZuniga, John Nyberg, John Beatty, and Pablo Marcos. Letters, Albert de Guzman, Steve Haney, Gaspar, Bill Oakley, and Carrie Spiegel. Colors, Anthony Tolan, Liz Barube, Barube, maybe? I don't know. Michelle Wolfman, Tom Ziuko, and Carl Gafford. Edits by Denny O'Neill, Barbara Randall, Mike Gold, Mike Collin, and Dick Giordano. This one had a cover price of $1.50. Now, before we actually get into the issue, I want to talk about the cover a little bit. Uh, Last time out, we read in, I think it was Amazing Heroes, that the first arc of Green Lantern was supposed to be uh, Peter David and uh, Todd Smith's arc, which... Which, if you are familiar with that arc and uh, have seen this cover, you'll probably realize uh, they are correlated. In this image, we've got Hal Jordan falling out of the sky, and it says that Green Lantern learns the meaning of fear, which, again, if you're familiar with the uh, Peter David Todd Smith opening arc, you'll know that that is a scene that occurs in it. Uh, One thing I want to point out here, this is drawn by George Perez, and, uh, I mean, Perez is fantastic, of course, but... Well, he put Hal's ring on the wrong finger. Not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point that out. Now, with the weekly compilation post for uh, Action 602, I revealed the results of the first poll, because I did include a poll with Action 601 for folks to uh, just chime in on what their favorite story was, just like DC will do um, in coming months or coming weeks, I suppose. And I'll get to that as we work our way through as well. And I tell you, it wasn't long before I realized the folly of my actions here, because, uh, yeah, it looked like for most of the week it was going to be a pretty fair um, poll. But right at the uh, you know 11th hour of the poll, all at once... Somebody just bombed the Dead Man feature with, uh, with all these votes. And, I mean, why bother to cheat on a poll on a website that absolutely nobody knows about? Like, what do you get out of that? <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I learned the, uh, the error of my ways pretty quick. Uh, we did maintain the, uh, polls, uh, from this point on, but, I don't know, I, I kind of took everything with a, uh, with a shaker of salt. I was hoping for one thing. I was hoping for engagement, conversation, discussion, and, uh, well, no, we didn't really get that. But uh, let's hop into our stories here. We're going to start, of course, with Green Lantern. And here we pick up right where we left off last week. Cat Matui lay dead in Jon Stewart's apartment, and our man Hal Jordan has just returned from robbing a South African mine, and uh, I'm sure that'll never ever come up again. Now, Jon Stewart is um, understandably upset, and he recounts his discovery of his wife's body. Now, you see, Star Sapphire hung around until Jon returned so that she can inform him that this slaughter was a message for Hal Jordan. And, uh, you know, upon hearing this, Hal does what any responsible hero would do. He gets the hell out of there with the quickness. We jump ahead several days to Katma's funeral service, and we learn that, uh, Oh boy, we learned that when Guy Gardner learned of her passing, he laughed. He laughed and laughed and laughed, which, uh, I mean, I mean, Guy Gardner's a jerk. Now, speaking of uh, ice-cold stuff here, uh, once the funeral ends, Star Sapphire shows up and then pushes a bunch of the mourners into an open grave with a bulldozer. I mean, it, it, the image here we get is is insane. It's like... 
people are actually being pushed into an open grave and like they're like waving like hey help us help us it's really really great uh, now this springs Hal into action now he gives Carol chase through the skies however he's pulled away when she blasts an air force jet that is passing over the city at this point Hal's got to decide whether to continue pursuing the baddie or to abandon the chase and uh, you know save a whole bunch of lives naturally our man chooses the latter and while the jet does crash, causing plenty of property damage, he sees to it that it's just about the safest crash on record. The pilot gets out, and several willpower constructs manage to contain the impact. We wrap up with the pilot approaching our lantern and offering him a copy of the Coast City White Pages, which he claims was given to him by, quote, that crazy broad. Hal takes a peek, and he finds Carol Ferris's listing has been circled. Now, that is where we leave this chapter. And, you know, when we took a look at the first part of this serial, it almost didn't really feel like a superhero story. I mean, we did have Hal in costume for part of it when when he was stealing diamonds, but otherwise, it felt more like a kind of a slice-of-life story. We got the Stuarts getting tired of Hal and Aresia's loafing, Katma being killed by Hal's crazy ex-girlfriend while making dinner. I don't know, it just felt different. Now, this installment kind of brings us back into more or less straightforward superheroics. You know, we had the battle over Coast City, diverting from the chase to save the day. Not a bad thing, but it is a little bit jarring, or at least it was for me. I guess maybe I was just looking for a little more interpersonal stuff. Though I guess too much of that be- could become indulgent. I suppose it is a fine line. We only have a, a certain amount of pages allotted to us, so I kind of understand. Uh, the highlight here was the insane funeral scene, right? Um, first, we hear that Guy Gardner, you know, the jackass that he is, he actually laughed when he heard that John lost his wife. Seems almost beyond the pale, uh, even for Guy, doesn't it? I mean, that's ir- irredeemable. And I mean, I-, I don't know how John and Guy ever worked together again after that. I would probably just want to beat the hell out of him anytime we cross paths. From there, we get the absolute nuttiness of Carol sweeping a bunch of mourners into an open grave, which, as mentioned, would have been hysterical if it weren't so tragic. And I I guess maybe that goes to show that Carol is completely out of her mind at this point, and in that regard, it certainly does the job. Overall, uh, while I think I would have preferred a more chatty chapter, considering we just lost a longtime lantern and the wife of one of our stars here, I suppose I do understand the necessity of moving the story along to its its next beat, which, of course, we will be getting to next time. From here, we shift over to our Dead Man feature, which opens in that Mayan temple where Dead Man was just seen by Major Kasaba. But I hear you ask, and how in the world can that be? Well, she asks who Dead Man is and just what he's doing there, And so he lies. He lies to her, claiming to be Taliak, the master of this here temple. Well, that's not going to work. Kasaba knows that this can't be right because, uh, well, get this. She is actually Taliak. Uh, The major then explains the situation. It looks like Taliak is simply inhabiting this body. Kasaba is just the uh, vessel of his reincarnation here. She then attempts to blow several holes in Dead Man's torso, and naturally this doesn't work. The gunfire, however, does get the attention of the other soldiers. Taliak takes advantage of this and figures, hey, you know what, why not mobilize the troops? They are a bit suspicious considering it's 1am, but they're not about to tell the lady no. 
They head out of the temple to organize their peers, at which time Deadman decides to inhabit one of their bodies. A little bit later, the troops are lined up before Kasaba, who claims that there is a traitor among them. She immediately points out the body Deadman's currently inhabiting, I mean, seems Talia can see through just about anything, and then sicks the rest of the soldiers on him. She then, get this, orders him laid out on a stone slab so that they can sacrifice him to, and I can never pronounce this name, even when I was playing Final Fantasy VIII, I could, Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl, um, Quetzalcoatl, I don't know. Anyway, old Boston makes a hasty exit from the body at this point. Deadman engages in some body hopping, and with each hop, he punches Kasaba. At this point, Taliak has had just about enough, and so he vacates the vessel. We wrap up with a face-off between Deadman and Taliak, and it now looks like everybody, including the archaeologist we met last time, can see both of them. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, Deadman was vote-bombed <laughs> during the first poll, which... Uh, I think I took a little bit personally because I expressed a bit of trepidation about getting into a dead man story. Dead man is one of those characters that I only ever liked while he was alive during Brightest Day. The dead dead man really doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me here, so I, I thought the vote bombing was like a message to me here. But uh, you know what? Not only did I enjoy the first chapter of this, I actually enjoyed the second one as well. You know, I, I really liked Boston's attempt at, uh, like, quick thinking, you know, and telling Kasaba that he was actually the master of the house, Taliak. This only served to illustrate how hard luck the fellow could be when it turned out that, uh, well, he was actually talking to Taliak, so he couldn't claim that he was that guy. I felt the bit at the altar was a little bit strange. Um, I have a difficult time accepting that the soldiers would just blindly agree to take part in human sacrifice, <laughs> especially considering, as far as they knew they would be sacrificing one of their own. You know, at the word of someone who just said, there's an imposter among us, we need to drive a blade through his heart. I figure that might be the bridge too far for me. I mean, they were just talking about Kasaba acting erratically, and now they're prepared to take part in a ritual sacrifice on her word alone? I don't think so. Now, this was a uh, solid cliffhanger where we see yet another civilian seeing dead man, not to mention also seeing Taliak. At least that's how it appears, so uh, we will dig further into that next time. But now, Wild Dog. Now, Wild Dog opens with our favorite reporter, Susan King, showing her latest broadcast to Mr. Javi of whatever news station she works for. And it's funny, he's just like, come on, this isn't, not this Wild Dog stuff again. And, uh, I mean, in fairness to him, if it is Susan King, there's like a 90% chance that whatever she's working on is going to be Wild Dog related. Now, he, unsurprisingly, is tired of hearing about it, especially considering the fact that she had failed to unmask the vigilante during the original miniseries like she promised she would. Now, she's given her next assignment, and it's a remote broadcast from Reed World Bookstore where there's currently a bit of a demonstration going on. You see, it's the Legion of Morality, and they're marching in protest of pornography, in, in quotations here, because their view of porn is rather broad. <laughs> it's not limited to just nudity. Uh, Susan runs into fellow reporter and potential wild dog candidate there, Lou Goddard. And, I mean, what we see here, insofar as pornography, is things like Ms. Magazine, Vogue. Playboy's there, too, but also, like, Psychology Today. I, I don't know. I will say that uh, Psychology Today isn't a very good magazine, but I wouldn't call it pornography. 
Anyway, we learn that B. Lyle Lehman of the Legion of Morality will be speaking that evening at the Davenport Public Library, and it's an event that's likely to get weird. And indeed, that night, he's got the pulpit, where he's comparing some benign publications to smut, and he's also claiming that he has irrefutable proof that exposing oneself to such things leads to immoral behavior up to and including child molestation, rape, and murder. Worth noting, Lieutenant Andy Flint, who is another one of our potential wild dogs from the miniseries, is present here. Layman is whipping the people up into a lather, even suggesting that they dump the smut into the Mississippi River. And a little note from my post here, I can't be the only one who spells out M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I in my head every time I have to type it, right? I don't know, maybe I am. Anyway, he compares this mission to the Boston Tea Party. What's worse, the people of the Quad Cities are completely buying into it. Now, after Layman speaks, a benediction is delivered by an old hippie called Reverend Smugworthy. Oh, come on, guys. Uh, Now, following the meeting, Flint and Goddard meet up and they chat about everything they just heard. Now, Goddard compares his philosophy to Adolf Hitler, which, if I learned anything from my 20-plus years on the internet, means the conversation is over. And uh, thankfully, it is. Later, we follow Flint over to Jack Wheeler's garage, where they have a fairly contentious chat. We learn here that Flint himself was responsible for setting Wild Dog loose in the last chapter, something he immediately regretted doing, but, you know, that's a glob of toothpaste that ain't going back into the tube. This chapter ends with a bang, or a boom, rather a kawoom, as Read World Books is blowed up real good. Well, uh, suddenly the story arc title Moral Stand makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Uh, a bit heavy-handed, perhaps, but uh, enjoyable enough, I suppose. Uh, part of what made the original miniseries so special was the effort made toward fleshing out the rest of the cast. So having Goddard, Flint, and even Susan King as potential point-of-view characters here is pretty neat. Now, speaking of the, uh, the delightful Ms. King... I really enjoyed her boss calling her out for getting too caught up in the Wild Dog story. I gotta imagine, at this point, she's like a broken record, you know, uh, since since he's hit the scene, all she talks about is Wild Dog. Now, oddly, uh, the boss here refers to Wild Dog as being old news. That might not be totally fair. You know, I would like to think that if a masked vigilante just blew away a half dozen people at City Hall, that uh, we'd be able to talk about him or her for a little while, especially if they were... You know, still out there. Now, I'm getting some definite vibes from Layman here. Maybe a little bit of modern perception of Frederick Wortham mixed with a televangelist? It is worth noting that Max Allen Collins and Terry Beatty would go on to produce a work about a, quote, rabble-rousing social critic who declared war on comic books back in 1954. Unsurprisingly, it's called Seduction of the Innocent. came out in 2013 from Hard Case Crime, and really doesn't do a whole heck of a lot to uh, to help people understand the full breadth of the Comics Code Authority and its establishment back in the uh, mid-50s. But uh, what are you going to do? Sometimes it's easier to latch on to a narrative. Um, now, Reverend Smugworthy. Oof. Um, maybe uh, maybe we should have called him Reverend Groanworthy, because come on, come on. What else did we learn here? Uh, we learned that Lieutenant Flint had weaponized Wild Dog last issue, which is a pretty interesting route to take especially with morality being at the core of the story, at least to this point. It's at best a moral gray area to use Wild Dog in such a way. I mean, it got results, which at the end of the day might be all that matters, though that will likely have Godder God-winning again, or I guess Godder-winning, I guess we can call it. 
Overall, after reintroducing the character last issue, it feels like we're now setting the foundation for this arc to follow. It's, uh, it's good stuff. It's breezy reading, though as mentioned, maybe a little bit heavy-handed and uh, more than a little unsubtle. Next up is our cheat day. This is the Superman two-page uh, Sunday funnies-looking uh, thing here, which I really felt guilty about dedicating an entire day to this. And um, I might have overdid it with the analysis just to make sure I filled some space here, uh, but uh, let's dive on in. We pick up right where we left off. Superman arrives at the scene where he's pumped full of lead. Well, I mean, he would have been if he wasn't Superman. The baddies flee, leaving two of their number behind. One called Charlie attempts to chase after the car, while the other, Dave, throws himself on the hood of the car and tries to hold on for the getaway. He's not so lucky. You see, his partners hit a hard swerve here, which sends poor Dave bouncing onto the nearby train tracks, where he lands, naturally twisting his ankle. And wouldn't you know it? All the trains are on schedule in Metropolis, so this poor fella might be about to go splat. Now, I made the maybe joke or observation uh, in the first issue, or the first you know two-pager, that uh, these two-page Superman strips pack in just about as much story as a current-year complete comic book. And, you know, while that is a bit of an exaggeration, I'm not sure it's entirely untrue. We do get a nice bit of action here, and some questions we can ask. Uh, we don't know who this poor dude being held up is, nor do we know just why the goons were about to attack him. I suppose at this point, we could just assume that it was a failed mugging attempt, but, I mean, we know that's very unlikely. There's going to be more to this. Uh, the art here is really good. Though it does kind of feel, and I might be projecting here, but it does kind of feel as though Swan is struggling with the post-crisis Superman's face. It doesn't look quite as swanny as the pre-crisis stuff, but I just don't think he's found the right look just yet. Next up, it's time for the new Secret Six, and uh, stop me if you heard this one before, but we pick up right where we left off. We got the all-new Secret Six watching Mockingbird via monitor. That's here that we actually get to know our new team a little bit better. Here we meet Vic Summers, a Vietnam veteran who is blind, Mitch Hoberman, a sculptor who has rheumatoid arthritis, easy for me to say, LaDonna Jamil, a soap opera star who had acid thrown in her face and she's also mute, Luke McKendrick, an Olympic athlete who lost both of his legs during a terrorist attack, Dr. Maria Verdugo, a mathematician, mathematician, how do I say that word? She does math, and <laughs> she also has epilepsy. Finally, we got uh, Anthony Montaigne, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for Peephole magazine, who is deaf. Now, from the floor, a table rises with strange apparati on it. Mockingbird tells them that these pieces are the answer to all their problems, and they can have them so long as they sign on the dotted line and join his all-new Secret Six. Hmm, well, we don't get their answer because we have to shift scenes back over to the Enchanted Forest. There, the original Secret Six are getting reacquainted. It would appear that these reunions are a semi-regular thing happening around every five or so years. Nobody can say why they still attend these things, and they only figure it's just because they enjoy each other's company. The reunion is interrupted by a message from Mockingbird. He reveals that he organized this whole thing so the oldies can train the newbies, so they are off to San Francisco. Let's hop back to San Francisco, where the secret successors all try on their apparatuses. And it would appear that Mockingbird wasn't just whistling Dixie here, they all work. They basically counteract their handicaps. Now, Mockingbird isn't an unreasonable man, so he offers them a day to kind of try before they buy. 
and then he asks the Sixum to return with, the, with their answer the following day. We follow Vic Summers, who is the blinded veteran. He goes back to his home, and it would appear as though his relationship with his girlfriend or wife is a bit strained. It seems like when Vic was presumed dead, she might have made an attempt to move on with her life. At the same time, a man is chatting up several Technodyne executives. If you recall, they might have, or actually definitely did, have something to do with that acid rain last issue. The next day, we rejoin Vic, who's out dining with his girlfriend or wife. She asks him what she should tell Gary about them. Vic ain't wanting to hear none of that. He leaves the restaurant. Uh, uh, Their bill was covered by Mr. Bird, Mockingbird, of course. And he decides that, you know what, he's not going to join up with this Secret Six. But he's going to keep this sight-giving device anyway. Well, not so fast, Kimasabi. No sooner does he decide this than it's lights out. What Mockingbird gives, Mockingbird can take away. We close out this chapter with the original Secret Six en route to San Francisco. Wouldn't you know it, halfway there, the plane they're on goes boom. We're getting quite a few explosive endings this week, aren't we? So we're getting a little bit of a better idea what's going on here, right? We are meeting our new Secret Six, I suppose. Uh, Last time out, I kind of wrote off the Secret Six feature for having some pretty poor pacing and transitions. Now, this week is better, yeah, but uh, we probably should have gotten some of this information in the opening chapter. We mainly follow Vic Summers here, which, I mean, he seemed like he was going to become our point-of-view character, no pun intended, of course, but I really haven't formed enough of a fondness for the fellow to really care about his personal life. Sure, I mean, everything that happened to him really sucks, but I just don't know or care about him well enough to really invest. Mockingbird is depicted here as fairly creepy, uh, kind of a controlling dude, offering the newbies things that they couldn't resist, literally couldn't resist, and things that, uh, well, he had complete control over the function of to boot. And I assume he's orchestrating the originals being wiped out as well. I don't think we can trust this guy. I mean, that's me going out on a limb, (laughs) but this uh, might make for a pretty interesting story moving forward. Now, overall, just like the Wild Dog story we talked about a couple minutes ago, it feels like the foundation is being laid for what's to come. So far, so good, especially since we now have names for these folks. So that's the first step in starting to care about them. Let's head into our final feature. This is Blackhawk. And uh, hey, stop me if you heard this one. We pick up right where we left off. We're still in Singapore. It's still 1947. And besides his holster and hat, Janice Prohaska is still completely naked. You see, he shot that one fella, Zalecki, in the last issue. Uh, We see here that he only shot to disarm him. The mystery blonde from the lobby is drawn upstairs by the sound of gunfire. And before we, or she, knows it, she's thrown right into Blackhawk's soapy, supple self. Now, a fight rages over the course of the next several pages, with our mystery blonde getting involved as well. She actually winds up saving Jan's life when she clubs a would-be shooter over the head with a stool. Janice pays the uh, ladies who were servicing him and leaves with the blonde. He tells her all about Zalecki. Turns out he owes the man money for a lost hand of cards. Jan ain't about to pay up, though, as he's convinced the other guy cheated. You see, he knows this because Jan himself was cheating and Zal still managed to win. Together, they head to the Singapore Sling Bar where our blonde finally introduces herself. She is Cynthia Hastings, and she has sought out Blackhawk to fly a mission for her. He hems, he haws, uh, unsure that he'll be able to even get off the ground at this point, what with fuel prices being what they are. 
She assures him that she will be able to come up with the scratch and promises him that this trip will be very much worth his while. Now, believing Cynthia to either be wealthy or in cahoots with Claire Chenault's Air America, and I'm not sure who or what that is just yet, Jan um, checks Cynthia for dog tags, which is to say he, um, well, he pulls her top and uh, looks at her boobies. Uh, now, this gets him socked out of his seat, It's all good, though, as from this angle, he now has a pretty good view up her dress. So, uh, yeah, um, I don't think this would fly in current year, but uh, this dude just won't quit. Now we wrap up with Cynthia revealing the stakes of the mission. Several million dollars in gold, and uh, it's finders keepers, so they'd best get moving just as quick as they can. So, yeah, another really enjoyable issue or chapter, I suppose, of Blackhawk. Um, and, I mean, it's funny, looking at this now, I'm not sure old Jan could be depicted the same way if the story came out, right? It, it almost almost definitely couldn't. A dude's kind of a lech, totally a lech. Uh, it's certainly fun, and it's a callback, but, uh, I mean, even as a period piece, I don't think they'd be able to, to do that nowadays. Now, if you've followed my stuff for... Any amount of time, you'll know that I very seldom see movies. But to me, this story feels like, you know, what a high-octane action movie might be. I, I could be completely off my nut, but it just uh, oozes testosterone. I mean, you can almost smell the Old Spice and burnt motor oil in reading this. Now, I'm digging this partnership between Cynthia and Jan. Um, I like that in his attempts to objectify her, he gets knocked on his butt. And I'm definitely looking forward to revisiting this story again here. It was so fun the first time, and uh, yeah, it seems like it's going to be just as fun this time. Now, as for our back matter this time out, which was basically the whole point of this endeavor at the start, uh, going through the back matter, going through letters pages, well, we don't get that this time. What we get instead is a DC Focus article that's all about the power of the atom. And, you know, I started jotting down some notes and revisiting some of my work where I talked about the Power of the Atom series and how I might have received that, but I decided against pursuing it. I feel like it's a little too different from what we're covering here in Action Comics Weekly. It's kind of just its own thing, and we're, I mean, we're never going to discuss the Atom as part of this project, so, I don't know, it seems kind of weird to devote a whole lot of time and effort into it. But what's important about this page, at least as it pertains to this program, is a little yellow box that uh, announces that they're going to be running polls and asks the readers to vote. It says, just as soon as you finish this issue of Action Comics Weekly, write us a letter or a postcard and rank this issue's stories in order of preference. The one you like the most first, and the one you like second, second, and so on. Each week we'll tally the vote and print the results right here in our letter column. Your opinion counts, so vote. Now that's going to be fun when we start getting around to those, uh, those votes coming in. And that was the feeling I was trying to evoke with our own little poll on the site here, which I may reinstate for these episodes coming out. Uh, maybe when uh, these get a wider release, we'll do a poll again. I can't be sure. I mean, the first time around, it was, uh, <laughs> it was weird, but uh, maybe this time it'll be better. As always, the goal of these efforts is to foment discussion and conversation and just be able to chat about these stories, about these characters, about these creators, you know, all that good stuff. So hopefully we'll get some chatter cooking in the uh, next little while. Now, if you'd like to talk more about this issue, the characters, the creators, whatever you want, you could just comment right under this episode at patreon.com xlapsed. When this program's hit the main feed, 
Of course, I have other ways you can reach me as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts, show notes, and all sorts of stuff, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and or 90sxmen. And, of course, for the full audio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available anywhere you find noise on the Internet. And special thanks to Jeremiah for helping me, helping walk me through how to uh, find the exclusive feed on uh, Apple Podcasts here. If anybody needs any help with that, I might be able to walk you through it. So uh, reach out for that as well. But I think that's going to do it for me today. I want to thank the patrons, Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. I hope you're enjoying this extra content. And of course, if you have any suggestions for future content, please let me know. I am all ears. But with all that said, I want to thank you one last time for spending some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.